0: Today's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by the American Heart Association, which is urging lawmakers to save physical education. The average school gets just $764 each year for phys ed. Go to heart.org letthemplay let them play to learn more and take action.
1: Hi, I'm Julie Lifcott hames the host of Getting In. I'm the former dean of freshmen at Stanford and
2: the author of How to Raise an Adult. Getting In is a new podcast from Panoply, following a group of high school seniors through the college admission process. And right now is crunch
1: time, especially for students applying early decision. You know, when you put it all together, it's a lot. I don't really sleep. I drink a lot of black coffee. But, you know, I'm, I'm stressed, but I'm, I could be worse. I could be bored. That's what you'll
2: hear on the new episode of Getting In from Panoply, available on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. Feeling good. I'm ready to do this.
0: Welcome to The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here as usual with my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. and We're going to start off this week talking about really what's one of the, the most evergreen subjects in all of American politics, something that goes back way to the early 19th century,
1: and it's gerrymandering. Well, I was going to tell people first to, to rate this awesome podcast on iTunes. But yeah, after that, we, can, we can talk about gerrymandering. That's almost On our email, this has been one of the topics you all have really wanted us to discuss, which I am happy to do, because I actually think this is one of the more fascinating topics. And the the reason I think gerrymandering is interesting is that it is one of these explanations for what has gone wrong in American politics. It is widely believed among a certain segment of voters, widely believed among political elites and pundits, but political scientists absolutely can't stand it. They think gerrymandering is this complete red herring in discussions of what has gone wrong in American politics. So the basics for people who don't know, one of the very unusual features of the American political system is that to some degree we actually let our politicians choose their voters rather than simply having the voters choose their politicians. We have in most states, state legislatures running the process of drawing congressional districts. And what that ends up meaning is that whatever party is in control of the legislature ends up creating a series of districts that favor their side and disadvantage the other side. And so you can get into really unusual situations, as you did to some degree in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania in 2012, where Democrats won very, very, very large majorities of the congressional vote, but actually Republicans won the majority of congressional districts. The reasons political scientists don't buy this, one, they just don't think it's as big a deal as a lot of folks think. The estimates on how many seats the gerrymandering cost of Democrats in 2012 range from about seven to about 15, which is significant. I actually think that's a pretty big number, but it it isn't everything. But the other thing is that there is this argument that gerrymandering is responsible for polarization, for why the parties are going so far apart because these districts have become very safe. And the thing a lot of political scientists will tell you is that, no, look at the Senate. That's not gerrymandered. That is simply built around states, and it's exhibiting a lot of the same trends. So, so Matt, what do you think? Gerrymandering, devil or or, So something that
0: I think often frustrates me in this is that I think political scientists use a somewhat narrow view of gerrymandering when they're making this discussion. So you'll hear people say, well, it's not gerrymandering that gave Republicans this huge advantage in Florida. It's just the fact that geography has a Republican bias, that like Democrats are naturally packed very heavily into the city of Miami and a couple other Florida central city areas areas, whereas Republicans are spread more evenly. So this is people associating gerrymandering with the idea of ugly looking congressional districts, uh, which is correct. I mean, that's literally the term comes from the idea that this... um, old-time Massachusetts governor named Gary, actually, that he drew a district that looked too much like a salamander. Um, so so, the, so this idea of what things look like has been deep in the bones of American culture for a long time. And so if you draw very pretty-looking districts, it tends to skew the vote in Republicans' favor. But I think when people say, when liberals write in to complain that, oh, it's gerrymandering, They're not talking about this, like, super specific question of do your lines look nice. They're saying that the way votes translate into seats is unfairly disadvantaging Democrats. And I think the same political scientists who sort of poo-poo gerrymandering would have to agree with the mathematical reality that in 2012, most people voted for a Democrat in the House, but most House members ended up being Republicans— and what exactly you want to call that mechanism you know if we want to call it disproportionality rather than gerrymandering that's fine but the fact is is that we have a lot of disproportionality in the system in 2014 most people voted for republicans but in 2012 they didn't and you know i think we saw in 2009 right that one or two years can make a big difference if democrats had had a concurrent majorities in the house and the senate and Barack Obama had been in the White House for four years of his presidency rather than just two, that would be a very different country from a policy standpoint.
2: It'd be it'd be Canada pretty much, which will, I'm sure will factor into our gerrymandering conversation as we go forward. Yeah,
1: there is some interesting Canadian gerrymandering. There's a you might policies. say it's a
2: worthwhile Canadian initiative that we Ooh. may discuss later.
1: Ooh, that is a deep cut. Yes. Ooh. Anyways, um, <laughs> moving forward, they call them ridings.
2: <laughs> they do call them. That's a solution, really. I was going over a lot of our gerrymandering content today because this isn't a subject. I've written about as much and, and you know, it really struck me. I kind of go towards the overblown side of things that Ezra was talking about, that it seems like the stand. And I do think people really do point to those weird cut districts. Like when you, when people think about gerrymandering, they think of like this district that is like chopped up. Like I think a lot of it is like you look at these like images of these things that don't look like they go together at all. And, you know, I think that is really the focus, but the geography of it seems to matter a lot. and also I think some of the most interesting research is looking at what's going on in the Senate and seeing that you see you know there there's no gerrymandering, like unless you consider state borders some kind of form of that, that you really just have the states there electing their senators. So you'd expect if you were seeing this gerrymandering on the House side that you would see polarization get worse in the House than you do in the Senate.
1: So I have a theory about this.
2: Oh well, go on. Well, the, so the research suggests. Tell me if I'm wrong, Ezra. But the political science research doesn't seem to suggest that polarization is worse in the House, or it doesn't seem. It is a bit worse but in a, the House, but, but, but not also not much. a lot of polarization in the Senate is
1: driven by House members going up. This is what up. I was going to say. There's a, a paper. I want to say it's by Sean Therialt, Uh but I could be I could be wrong. We'll post about that it on if I am, later. I'm, I'm. It'll be in the show notes. But there's a paper showing that a tremendous amount of Senate polarization can be explained by looking at more ideological House members who then were elected to the Senate because the place where a lot of members of the House, members of the Senate get their start is in the House. And so if you believe that, then that's at least one way in which gerrymandering or more broadly disproportionate districts can be at least partially an explanation for Senate polarization. Now, I don't believe that it's the only explanation. I think if you look at polarization, there are, number one, a really broad range of dynamics that are converging to create political polarization. And number two, one of my pet peeves in American politics is the idea that polarization is somehow unnatural. What was really bizarre was this kind of mid-20th century equilibrium in American politics where you had a Democratic Party that had both very conservative and very liberal members, a Republican Party that was both very conservative and very liberal. It is much more sensible to have parties that represent clear choices from each other Uh, in the 1950s. The American Political Science Association released a report calling for much more party polarization, and they got what they wanted, good and hard. But I actually think that we often mistake polarization for the problem when the problem is we don't have a political system that that can work effectively under conditions of party polarization, and conditions of party polarization are the international and, in a lot of ways, a logical norm. But so to to go back to the underlying point here, I'm not persuaded that the Senate and its polarizing trends is really a refutation of the argument that gerrymandering is at least driving part of this because it's simply not independent from, from the House. I spoke one time to a a law professor at Yale named
0: Heather Gerken, and she was talking about how gerrymandering is much harder to fix than people think. And she was saying, because if you draw districts that all look really nice, you can actually get even more disproportionate outcomes. And there's problems of assuring that people of color have adequate representation and like on and on and on and on. And it's getting really sort of complicated. She's explaining all these ins and outs. And because I'm a jerk, I sort of like cut in and I said like, Well, what if there were multiple member districts in which you would just say, well, okay, Iowa is electing nine guys, and Mm -hmm. we'll divvy them up proportionally. And then she said, oh, yeah, in my class, I I do that last because it it solves all the problems. (laughs) And then you don't get to teach people all these interesting facts. So it it turns out that multiple member districts violate the Voting Rights Act because there was this concern that what they were going to do was go to, say, Georgia and say, well, we're going to elect all of our members at large in one person elections. So you could have a state that was 30, 40% black, but the white candidate would win all the seats. And so that's just a sort of sloppily drafted statute. The thing it intends to ban is not the same as a proportional system. And it, it seems to me that we could in theory, improve on a lot of this by changing that provision of the Voting Rights Act, encouraging states to elect members more proportionately. And then if Republicans got about half the vote in Ohio, they would end up with about half of the representatives.
1: But but so let me push something I think is actually it's a really useful way to think of maybe why gerrymandering doesn't end up having as much of an effect on the final electoral composition as people think. There is an inherent tension when you're gerrymandering. So imagine that you are the state legislature in Pick Your State, and you're drawing up these districts. When people talk about the way gerrymandering is polarizing American politics, what they talk about is safe districts, right? The idea is that you have these districts where the Republican or the Democrat cannot lose. Mm -hmm. And so the only real concern they have is winning their primary. So a Democrat has to worry about a liberal challenger, a Republican about a conservative challenger, but neither has to worry about the other side. So there's no real need to moderate The thing is, if you were gerrymandering to get the largest majority, what you'd actually want to be doing is creating not a bunch of safe districts, but as many 51 percent districts basically as you could. You'd want to spread your voters as efficiently as you possibly could. So somehow the folks who are gerrymandering try to strike a balance here. But there is this kind of internal tension. Politicians, what they often want is a safe district. But if from the perspective of their larger party, what you want to do is put your politicians in... Districts that are just safe enough for them to win, but to have as many districts as you can that tilt in your direction. Well, and you going actually, from very yeah. safe districts you, doesn't help you. You with saw
0: that. this in in California, which used to have a Democratic partisan gerrymander, and then they replaced it with an independent commission system, and the independent commission actually helped Democrats pick up seats. Right. This because, is super interesting. Because what the Democratic incumbents had been doing, they've been sort of doubling down on safety for themselves. Right. And the independent commission forced the Democratic incumbents to take on districts that were a little bit riskier. I mean, still D leaning because it's California. But so they picked seats up. So some of the practical impact of gerrymandering comes down to kind of how bold and how aggressive the parties want to right, be. Right. Like how
2: good you are at gerrymandering. Like if you look at I think it was, it's either I think it's Pennsylvania. I was looking at the map of that where like they oh, seem, they're super good at gerrymandering. They're super good at like hitting. They just get the Democrats. There's these like districts that are like, you know, you get 73, 75 percent of the vote for Democrats. It's almost like an amazing it's an impressive feat how close they can get to 50 without like going Under like all these like 50 to 55 districts, which is what you really you want. You want to spread out your supporters as much as you can without losing the seats. Well,
0: it's not just about being good or or bad at it, but some of it is about commitment. Right. So Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I think this has become so prominent in recent years is that the wave of Republicans who were elected in 2010 have, I think, been unusually committed and ideological about their causes. So you see this in Wisconsin and Michigan, some of the anti-labor union measures that were taken by the state governments there. People would have said, I think 10 years ago, look, Republicans sometimes win in heavily unionized Midwestern states, but they'll tread cautiously because there are strong labor unions there. And, you know, they won't do what they want, but they'll be kind of careful about it. And what we've seen with that whole crop of governors and the legislators who back them is just a greater level of boldness. They really wanted to enact a conservative policy agenda. They were willing to make risky gerrymanders Mm -hmm. rather than safe ones. And it's largely paid off for them. I mean, the Republican governor of Pennsylvania lost. But most of those other people stuck around. Most of the gerrymanders have kind of stuck. But they have left it as a more brittle majority than it could otherwise be. If things tilt four or five points to the Democrats, they could pick up a ton of Pennsylvania seats because there's so many people like right on that ledge.
1: What some states have done like California and other countries like Canada is to hand gerrymandering over to independent commissions to simply take it out of the hands of partisan politicians, which honestly seems like a pretty <laughs> straightforward thing to do. You should you should probably not have your election districts drawn by people with a vested interest in who wins. But one difficulty you get into when you do that is, okay, well what are the guiding principles of how we should draw congressional districts? That is actually not something that is laid out in any clear way in our in, in our founding documents. So you'll hear people talk about maybe that competitiveness should be the idea, that for some reason having abstractly the most competitive districts you possibly can is the best thing for voters. Or you hear certainly one dimension of all this is making sure that there is minority representation in Congress. There are a lot of interesting competing ideas here. So, so I'm curious if either of you have a preference, if you were rewriting the state statutes and how this works, what would be your guiding principle when drawing a district? I mean, I think the Canadian case is interesting because one subtle psychological thing they do
0: is the districts have to have names rather than numbers. And so that encourages, I think subtly but really, an idea of community coherence because you get districts with names like Edmonton Center. And so that's like – the center part of Edmonton or something will be <laughs> whoa, if true, or, or, or it'll be Vancouver East, right? And so you can fiddle around the margins. I with, want
1: to compliment your knowledge of you. You went deeper on Canadian redistricting than I thought we were going to be. Look, like I, I,
0: I know a lot and a lot about Canadian redistricting. I took two <laughs> semesters of Canadian politics in college and I'm, I'm big into it. I, I think that what they do there with that naming and that sort of principle, right, that the, the district should represent a place And the place should be something you can give a name to because it should have some kind of tangible relationship. I think that lines up very well with the way most people think it should be done. You know, I think that's like authentic to the values of the American people. I also think it's a little bit dumb because it allows for a ton of disproportionality. And actually, Canadian elections have... Awful disproportionality, in part because they have multiple parties running in these seats. But so the liberals recently won a majority of seats in parliament with forty percent of the vote. There was some thought that if they got thirty-five percent of the vote, though, they would end up in third place. You know, because (laughs) it's it's a very odd system actually, which creates a lot of crazy tipping points. It's easy to describe what the districts are instead of oh, it's a funny snake, but it doesn't achieve any real values of political representation. So I do like the idea of trying to make it as representative Mm -hmm. as possible, you know, make the outcomes as proportionate as possible. I think that politics is largely ideological these days, that people are really not voting for, like, well, Johnny understands my neighborhood really well. They're saying, like, I agree with Republicans about stuff. And so we should try to make it, you know, way out that if, if half the people vote for this party, they get half the seats. If a third of the people... People vote for it to get a third of the seat.
2: I kind of like wonder about the idea of lotteries and like how those could like factor into this or like random sampling or something like that. Like, what happens when you take geography out of this right. completely? I think is a very interesting idea. And you look at like other ways to group people. I don't know exactly what they are, but if you're looking at these like. I mean, you could do it
0: algorithmically, right? Right. You could drop seven pins and then have the (laughs) districts grow arbitrarily to reach the appropriate sizes. And then at least you wouldn't have bias.
2: Right. Or what happens when you have a lottery where everyone picks out like a one to seven (laughs) and those are your – what happens in like that world? Is that a better world? I think that
1: to a very large extent you see the Senate, right? Yeah. Uh, I I do think that at this point the states have – there is a coherence to states still. It it means something to be – A resident of Arkansas or uh, I grew up in California. But it doesn't mean, and particularly if you grow up in California, all that much. It's a very, very big state. And so I do think that the fact that All states have followed a pretty polarizing political trajectory, suggests that if you did do it randomly, we wouldn't see that much change. I think that it makes sense that people are voting on the basis of party. Matt, you had a a piece on Vox around the midterm elections that I always thought was both funny but also correct, where you had this poll it was about who should you vote for in the in the midterm and it said well do you agree with democrats about things or republicans <laughs> right. and then it said you know if you pick republicans it said well then you should vote for the republican and i've always actually thought that that's kind of a profound point that elections would actually be more informationally rich if voters didn't know the names of the people they were voting for that the candidate qualities that People spend whole elections trying to show that Marco Rubio had this inspiring story for his family coming from Cuba, that Barack Obama had this kid with a funny name and the big ears. You can talk about this stuff till you're blue in the face. What Marco Rubio votes like is a Republican. What Barack Obama voted like was a Democrat. And we watch politicians spend tremendous amounts of money and a lot of voters time and and cognitive energy explaining the ways in which they're individuals, which is ultimately kind of a red herring because then they get to Washington and for all kinds of structural reasons that they're not really individuals. They are tribunes of a political party and they vote almost indistinguishably from other members of that party. Not entirely indistinguishably, but, but pretty much. I mean, I, I think that's that's right. There's a lot of noise in there. And that the,
0: the little letter next to people's names provides the vast majority of, of the signal in these things. Although you do see, I, I think, after after a break, we're going to move on and, and talk about the, the budget deal that happened recently. And when you do have conditions of divided government, right, you can't have everyone doing party line voting all the time. I, I mean, it's literally impossible, because we have these must pass sort of bills, they inevitably do get written something does get passed. And then each member of both parties sort of has to decide, well, am I the kind of member who's like the pro-compromise guy? Or am I the kind of member who's the anti-compromise guy? And I do think you see a difference between the House and the Senate there, that in the Senate, where most of the senators are at least kind of worried about losing the election, once the deal is struck they tend to be inclined to say, yeah, I'm, I'm getting on board. Whereas in the House, there's much more of a, you know, don't give a fuck attitude. And everyone wants to sort of play to the bleachers and say, oh, this is terrible, whatever it is.
1: Be- before we move on to this to this other topic, I actually want to get you to talk about an article you just wrote, because I think it, it really figures in here. So the gerrymandering is controlled by who controls state politics. You have a tremendous amount of national effect, depending on... Which party is in control, the majority of state legislatures, and, and for different reasons, governor's mansions. You wrote a piece recently that argued that Democrats have been for years now very confident about their party's prospects. They feel that they're the beneficiaries of a rising political coalition. There is a tremendous amount of pointing and laughing in American politics at the evident dysfunction of House Republicans, at the kind of circus the Republican primary has become. And that has also given Democrats this feeling of being a functional political party while the other party is collapsing. And you argued, and I think you know very convincingly, that Republicans are actually in, at least in the short term, much better shape than Democrats. And the Democratic Party is really in a kind of crisis that Democrats have not yet been willing to recognize it. Do you want to just lay out that yeah, argument Yeah. I bit? mean,
0: you know, it's basically just that you look at what do the Democrats have right now? And they have California and they have Barack Obama, right? And you know that the presidency is always a 50-50 proposition. I mean, at best, it's like a 52-48 proposition. Republicans clearly might win the next presidential election, whereas Republicans have a ton of states. And a lot of the states they have Really locked down a majority of them have Republican majorities in both houses of the legislature and the governor's mansion. state legislatures even more directly than congressmen just draw districts for themselves. Republicans are the vast majority of things like attorneys general insurance commissioners you know all that stuff and it's just much harder for Democrats to sort of win that large tail of races than for Republicans to win the, the small thing on the top. And, and I think there was a smart criticism of my piece that, that ran on, on our site by a political scientist who said Iglesias is sort of overstating the Democrats' woes. There's nothing wrong with them that wouldn't be fixed by losing a presidential election. But think about what that would mean, right? If the Democrats lose the election in 2016, they've really got nothing. Right. And it is true that from that posture of rock bottom they would almost certainly bounce back and recover <laughs> but you really want to try generally as a political party to avoid reaching that low and Republicans you know got pretty bad in 2009 uh, but it wasn't nearly as bad as what Democrats And
2: are the, I mean one thing to add is they've been using these state legislatures to like really change how policy works in right. America like we don't write about state legislatures as much as you know the one here in DC It's because not that viral. It's not that viral. Well, I like, disagree. I Well, anyways, viral. yes, we can
1: We definitely write about it, I think, as a profession as much as we should. I think no, we really think overweight it's federal undercovered, politics and underweight state It's undercovered
2: given how much they are changing people's lives yeah. versus Congress. And if you – like in the areas that I write about, like you look at abortion policy, like that has changed so much since 2011 because of the Republican takeover. And so much of
0: Medicaid has not And so changed. much of
2: Medicaid, so much of the ways Obamacare works. Like these are places where – Aside from who has what, like, they have very specifically changed American policy and even getting them back. Democrats are in a hole in that they're losing on these issues as Republicans have really taken these majorities to, like, change the way that America works.
1: Right. And and a point that your piece made, I thought, eloquently, Matt, and, and a point that is true is that that kind of down-ballot dominance for the Republican Party actually has two effects that make future Republican wins more likely. So there's a kind of entrenchment effect. One is gerrymandering and and related issues to that. So incumbency is one, a, a big political advantage. So if you are currently... Sitting in a House seat, you are very likely to win that House seat back. You just have all kinds of advantages of a name recognition, of fundraising, et cetera. But state legislatures are also drawing these districts, which is helping keep a lot of them in Republican hands or, for Democrats, more rarely in Democratic hands. But the other is that it's also a very big talent pool. Right. One way you get good Senate candidates, good House candidates, good state Senate candidates, good governor candidates, and ultimately even good presidential candidates is that you have a lot of people who are learning how to do politics well at a lower level. I mean, mm-hmm. Barack Obama and Marco Rubio, to, to go back to our examples from earlier, they were both members of state legislatures before they they got into politics. And, and having Democrats chance simply to shine, have less of a bench right now.
0: And it's not just it's fewer people, but it's when you're in the minority, in a very polarized climate, it's challenging to do anything that would make you into some kind of star, right? So Marco Rubio wasn't just in the Florida state legislature. He impressed his Republican colleagues and he became speaker. Right. And so that's the groundwork for a Senate campaign, things like that. Whereas there are plenty of Democrats in the minority in the Florida state legislature, but they're not in a position to pass significant laws to do things that make them have more of a statewide reputation. I mean, the one
2: counterexample to that is probably Wendy Davis. Um, But even then you look at her and like her attempt to rise in politics and there's like nowhere to go. She's the one who stands out to me as like a state legislator who made a name for herself with her filibuster but then where do you go with although, that when there Although other channels it's a, it's up? a
0: real it's a real exception that proves the rule though because what she did was she played very strongly to a national audience of people who were interested in abortion rights rather than playing to a Texas audience by doing something that people in texas were like oh yeah wendy davis fixed that problem and so she was able to raise a lot of money get volunteers have an infrastructure but you know you're not it's going to be challenging for any democrat to win in texas but it's particularly hard to win when your signature issue is late-term abortions and that's
1: that's the kind of it's not
2: late-term abortions just to clarify
1: all right which whichever ones it was But but that I, I just do think it gets to the broader point. What there's no doubt that there are Democratic stars emerging out of state legislatures, because there are Democrats in state legislatures. They're just more Republicans by quite a lot, and that just gives more Republicans more opportunities to find and train Absolutely. stars. So they're just gonna have for the foreseeable future a better bench than Democrats will. They're gonna have friendlier districts than Democrats will. I think it's a I think it's a real problem. I think that we are in a place right now where you read a lot of punditry on The problems of the National Republican Party. But if the economy turns down or it turns out that the third term penalty is a real thing and voters simply don't want to give Democrats another run in the White House and Republicans win the White House in 2016, I think you are going to see the major trend in political punditry turn on a dime. And we're going to go from Republican Party in complete disarray, barely a national party fracturing up to all of a sudden people realizing Republican Party is completely dominant at every level of government. And the Democratic Party is in a complete state of decline. It is funny when you can see a completely opposite mm-hmm. narrative that is sitting that turning near, on one election, turning on mm-hmm. one election. Speaking of turning, we should probably turn to a new topic.
0: We're going to turn to a new topic after a word from our sponsor. We all remember taking physical education classes back when we were in school. Whether you loved playing with parachutes or preferred kickball, phys ed's is a great way for kids to get regular physical activity, which is associated with a healthier, longer life and a lower risk of heart disease, blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. Physically fit children also perform better academically. They exhibit better classroom behavior. They have higher attendance rates. That's why the American Heart Association is urging Congress to save physical education. As lawmakers work to finalize the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, strong physical education policy should be a top priority. But some lawmakers want to do away with phys ed altogether. Learn more and take action at heart.org letthemplay. So, you know, there's been a ton of talk about dysfunction in Congress, dysfunction within the Republican Party. Nothing gets done. Everything's a disaster. And then this week, uh, a big budget agreement was reached between the Democratic and Republican congressional leaders and the White House that not only raises the debt ceiling, averting sort of the crisis that I was planning to cover this week, (laughs) but covering funding levels for the government, not, not just for one year, but for two years. And it didn't just solve the debt ceiling and the budget for two years, but it also solved a looming crisis in Medicare premiums. And it also solves a looming crisis in disability insurance payments. I don't think it does anything besides that,
1: but that's like a lot of birds with one stone. Well, does some small things besides that, right? Selling off oil and- Well, to make the yeah, budget more. Exactly. I just want it. yeah, yeah. It,
0: it has a lot of provisions, uh, but it, they sort of took, Four big looming things, some of which journalists have been planning to cover a lot, some of which like this disability crisis we had been, I think, wrongly ignoring for months. And they, they like are solving it all in one fell swoop. And apparently Washington works great because you had a, a sort of interesting confluence of events, which is that with John Boehner stepping down, he suddenly didn't care anymore about Appealing to the most right wing members of his caucus. And he actually really wanted to kind of do a favor for his successor and clear the decks of these kind of topics. Then Mitch McConnell in the Senate. He had sort of wanted for a long time to just take as many crises as possible off the table because I think he sees how close Republicans are to a kind of total victory and wants to not have ugly, crazy fights about weird things. Mitch
1: McConnell is a very smart politician. Yes, Uh, Yes. I really think he has a very clear understanding of American politics in a way many don't.
0: Right. So he understands what's going on and has been telling people and finally won in his party, like, can we not? fight about this stuff now (laughs) in a weird, embarrassing way. And let's just focus on the presidential election and then we can do whatever. Democrats, though, agreed to the deal in part because Democrats I tend to think, take a more sort of literal view of things. And just if you look at the specific provisions, it's a pretty good deal for Democrats. It increases discretionary spending. It adheres to the administration's main red lines. It solves these Medicare and and disability insurance problems. And it deprives them of their sort of dream or the dream of some Democratic backbenchers that Republicans would generate a spectacular crisis that destroys the country and, you know, unleashes the wrath of God on them. Uh, but in concrete terms, it makes progress. That's what's important to Obama. Uh, it seems to be what's important to Nancy Pelosi. And so democracy works great. and so, America's awesome.
1: Sir, do you want to, one thing I think is interesting about this, and you had a funny line about it where a thing Americans don't know is going to happen is not going to happen. But I think people are familiar with the idea of the debt ceiling. But do you want to run through the Medicare and disability crises and what was happening? There?
2: What I would I love to? Um, so the <laughs> Medicare one is the Big one I. Know. Yes, this is.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> as I, like, the, the, yes. Medi- the Medicare is a weird one. The Medicare one is the one I know best. Let's start there. So this Medicare, it was a totally bizarre thing in healthcare, and like really took me talking to a few people to understand it. Basically, the situation we ended up in is there's four parts of Medicare. One of them is Part B, which covers doctor visits. This is a part that pretty much every senior uses this type of insurance. And each year, um, and all these beneficiaries together, they are required by law to pay a quarter of that program's cost. So they do that in their deductibles. They do that in their premiums, their co-payments. So as Medicare spending goes up, the premiums usually go up. It's kind of actually pretty similar to health insurance. So that's something we all have to look forward to um, whenever we retire. And so usually this works fine. People get a cost of living adjustment to their Social Security, and some of that goes to paying the higher Medicare premiums. This year, in just a very bizarre coincidence of policy, it didn't work fine and what happened was earlier this month, the Social Security Administration said that seniors are not going to get a cost of living adjustment on their Social Security. Usually they get a small bump to their check to kind of account for the fact that because are getting, energy get, prices have fallen because so energy much. prices, which maybe we'll talk about later, have fallen so much. There was no bump. This means that all of a sudden this dusty old Social Security provision called the hold harmless provision gets dusted off and comes into effect the Hold Harmless provision says that Medicare premiums cannot reduce the size of someone's Social Security check. Most um, people who use Medicare are pulling that premium out of their Social Security, just like I deduct my insurance from my paycheck at work. And so about 70% of seniors do this, and all of a sudden, they're not allowed to pay for this Medicare increase. They are; It's off the table. There's 30%, we can talk about later, for a various number of reasons, who do not Pull the money out of their social security check. They have to make up the whole difference, and what was supposed to be a fifteen percent increase in premiums becomes a fifty-two percent increase in premiums for this smaller subset. Because thirty percent
0: of people have to pay the higher rates for a hundred percent of the population. Yes, exactly. So that they is a really
1: dumb way for the store.
2: So yes, <laughs> and I, instead of yes,
1: fixing the
2: law, right? So this is, and this is, I've tried to think of a more condensed way to say it. That felt like. Ages of things. But it's really it's just like a bizarre. It's a really complicated Rube Goldberg. Yes, it's a Rube Goldberg machine of policy. So perhaps Congress could have changed this law. You know, they decided not to go that far. Let's not proclaim Washington works too well. They basically said, oh, shit, this is a big problem. We are going to take out a loan from the Medicare General Fund for um, a bunch of our beneficiaries so that this loan will cover most of the costs. And we're just going to charge this 30 percent group, the 15 percent increase they were supposed to pay. And we're just going to make them pay that increase. And we will continue to charge them a $3 surcharge for many, many years going forward to slowly pay off this loan they have taken from the um, general revenue fund. So this $3 surcharge, you know, who knows? Maybe it'll be here when we all join Medicare in a number of years. It but, does
1: sound like the kind of thing that begins as a one-time gimmick and never goes away, Yes.
2: Ever. So the 70%, you know, they can't get the surcharge. They can't get the 15% increase. They're still not paying anything. So it's really this 30% that's footing most of the bill. So that is the fix for Medicare that most of us did not know was needed and did not know passed, and things just continue. Well, it's not passed. Pa- or, oh, sorry, did not as know. Of, as it is not this recording. Yes, maybe it has um, when this airs, but the thing that congress agreed on was not fixing the policy this weird loan that medicare has now taken out
0: yeah so congress kept a little of the spirit of dysfunctional weirdness right i mean you to were, be fair, yeah.
1: by the way i mean it, it is worth putting in this same bucket the fact that earlier this year maybe late last year did congress did, fix. did yeah. congress fixed a different bizarre medicare
2: yeah, of law that, that has to creating. be another episode. <laughs> but I don't think we have <laughs> yeah. to go into.
1: I don't think we have to go into the. So basically, what was happening was that Medicare, because it had a formula that was meant to keep doctor pay down, but the formula was keyed to a unusually low rate of healthcare growth that we did not match after the nineties. The formula kept recommending huge cuts to doctor pay, and every year every six months, Congress would delay it. And finally, actually, in the last year or so. John Boehner and Nancy Pelosi got right. together and they passed a permanent or, or pretty permanent doc fix. And this
2: was like shocking. This like, was shocking. Every year, healthcare nerds like talk, oh, this is going to be the year we get rid of the doc fix. And like every year it inevitably falls apart. You know, I was totally writing it off as something that was going to happen. And then they actually like, made a big Medicare policy change. And, and
1: what what I think is really striking about this budget deal, about that doc fix deal, about a couple other things that happened or have begun to happen is I think what you're seeing in American politics is that there is no way right now to pass bills that have a sharp partisan valence in either direction, right? So the the kinds of bills people really care about, the kinds of bills that would change the immigration system sharply or repeal Obamacare or improve Obamacare, things that are the kinds of laws and, and ideas that get people involved and engaged and interested in politics, they're not going anywhere. It's all it's all in gridlock right now. But what they have kind of figured out how to do, at least occasionally, is in terms of keeping government running and, and with the dog fix, making government run maybe a little bit better, Congress has figured out how to take situations and policy problems that most people don't have an opinion on, that they don't understand come up really fast in pretty secret processes with big compromises and then try to jam them through pretty quickly. And something that's fascinating about that is the way it requires the deep engagement
0: but apparent non-involvement of the White House. Right. <laughs> so that if you look at, for example, this disability situation, it's the kind of thing where what was happening – Do you, you want to yeah, so, explain that? So Social Security has some different trust funds. Uh, one of them is the Social
1: Security Disability if you are insurance. with us, weeds, <laughs> listeners, good on you. Yeah.
0: So there's, there's, there's this disability insurance trust fund, and it was running out of money. And when it runs out of money, what the law says is that every disability insurance recipient gets a 20% cut in benefits. So that would be sad. Disability insurance advocates, what they wanted basically was for more money to be put in the program. Republicans didn't like that idea because they don't like the idea of spending lots of money on things.
1: And then there was also this disagreement. And the disability insurance program, to be fair, it's become fairly controversial. Well, right. So so, so there's
0: there's a a different – element to it. So it's Republicans, if you just ask them, let's spend a bunch more money on something, they are, shall we say, skeptical. (laughs) And so they had taken this posture that they would only consider spending the money if there were big reforms to how the program worked. Because uh, some people, this is very hotly contested, and I don't, personally have a lot of knowledge about it. But there's a question as to whether people are being inappropriately given benefits. So there was a push from conservatives for some kind of big change to make it harder for people to get on disability. And what the White House did essentially was not tick up any kind of baton or go to bat for anything. You do not see the president come out swinging and say, these mean-spirited cuts are going to impoverish millions. But they were working on the problem. It's not like they were actually disengaged. But the president, as a public figure, was not out there stirring the pot on this. And so consequently, normal people formed no opinions about disability insurance. I think people basically are torn between thinking we should help disabled people out and not wanting to pay any taxes. And what they came up with was to instead of doing a 20% cut for everyone, they're going to flatten the benefit structure of the program. So it will keep people out of poverty, but people who had had higher incomes before going on disability are going to see quite big cuts in the checks that they get. It's the kind of thing that could easily be made politically toxic by either side, If you wanted to, we're really only able to reach this compromise because nobody was championing it right? You didn't have John Boehner and Mitch McConnell saying this was the way to fix the program. You didn't have Barack Obama saying this was the way to fix the program. You actually have them saying quite different things. And then on a staff level, they sat down and said, you know, the numbers work this way. It accomplishes the Democrats' core goal of protecting the most vulnerable people and accomplishes the Republicans' core goal of not spending a bunch of new money on disability. And so it gets done. And now it's got a sort of rush through Congress before people can argue about it too much.
1: Right, I mean, these things are complicated enough to understand, forget form opinions on. It's actually taking, I mean, it's fascinating to watch. It is actually taking a lot of the Washington groups who would normally be weighing in strongly. You see them talking a lot about process, right? They're very upset about the process by which this deal was Mm -hmm. reached, secret, behind closed doors. It is definitely not very small-d democratic, not very transparent. But it's honestly hard for a lot of them to come in with an aggressive view on the deal because they didn't have time to actually develop a deep understanding of the And that's the magic right. to making
0: it work, is you didn't yep. have a lot of leaking. You didn't have a lot of early
1: debate. Uh, so and it shows the two sides are working together well. The, right. the fact that you did not have more leaking about the deal, and the same was true back when the doc fix happened. Right. When you hear about a lot of leaks out of a negotiation, that is a sign that negotiation is not going well.
0: Right. Right. And it's a it's, a, a it's worth giving a shout out to Senator Ted Cruz, who for a while has been warning that this was in the works. And people generally mocked him. There's a lot of skepticism of Ted Cruz among sort of establishmentarian types. I would say I'm part of it. And people would say, you know what, this is a kind of nutty conspiracy theory that there is a giant secret negotiation <laughs> to resolve all of these outstanding disputes. And no one has heard about it. It hasn't leaked to anyone. But, you know, he was right. And maybe he was in the know. Maybe he was just wildly guessing. But, you know, my guess is, though, he actually did have a sense that there were a lot of big meetings happening, that no one was telling him what was happening <laughs> in the meetings. And, and, you know, but to maintain that secrecy, you have to not – take the proposals to your allied groups. Right. Because one thing politicians will normally do is they have their sort of go-to guys who they check with, say, oh, so-and-so proposed this. It sounded reasonable to me. Like, what do you think? But that generates a lot of leaks. Right. Like
2: when I used to report on Obamacare, you know, the way I'd get information is I'd call up the insurance lobby. I'd call up different groups and I'd say, hey, what is the White House asking you about? Hey, what is Congress asking you about? And this like $3 surcharge proposal, like no one had any idea about it until it was just in the bill. And when I asked people, oh, what do you think about it? They were just like kind of like a shruggy <laughs> emoticon, which is what I'm doing with my hands right now. It seems like a creative solution to a weird problem. Like, there was, and there was no inkling. You, usually you start before budget deals, like especially in Obamacare, before something would happen. You'd see like all these oh, reports yeah. of like, Long time. oh, this might happen, that might happen. This like $3 thing, you know, I follow a lot of healthcare people and like – I saw no reporting of this as like an option in the lead up.
1: I want to do sometime uh, an episode of the program on some of the research about how powerful the presidency is. But I think it really comes into play here. So there is a book by a Maryland political scientist named Francis Lee that's very, very influential in how I think about American politics. And it's called Beyond Ideology. And the book has a lot of different arguments, but one of the core ones is that the president is a party leader. The president is understood by the other party as the leader of, in this case, for Barack Obama, the Democratic Party. And when he takes a position on any issue, given that American politics is fundamentally zero sum, given that for Democrats to win an election, Republicans have to also lose it, he makes actual compromise on that issue harder because if he says, This is a great bill and it passes. Then he goes around the country saying, hey, look, I put forward this great bill. I got Republicans on my team. I'm bringing people together. I'm making Washington work. And so Lee did this great study where she coded a bunch of votes. And this is over multiple presidencies on issues that were non-controversial, but on things like should we go to Mars These are not things that Democrats have very strong opinions about, not things Republicans have very strong opinions about. And what she found is that when the president took an identifiable position, the chance of a party line vote went up dramatically. So if the president comes out on on one of these issues, and again, one of these non-controversial issues in American politics, and just so much as says which side he is on, forget whether he really campaigns for it, makes it a big deal, it just becomes that much harder for the other side to, to vote for it because all of a sudden, in order to defeat the president, defeating that bill or that issue is is part of the play. This is a idea. And I know this for a fact that the White House understands very clearly. I don't know if they know it from Lee's work, but they really do feel acutely that if President Obama comes out and talks about a policy, that policy will go from, in some cases, being completely non-controversial among Republicans to being extremely controversial among Republicans. And so it is a distinct strategic choice when they have Obama go out and campaign on something versus when they have him remain very, very quiet. Democrats could have made a big deal out of the coming death ceiling, out of these different crises. They could have gone around the country trying to use this as a cudgel against Republicans, and they didn't because Obama didn't want to polarize it. But this idea, this approach to politics does a lot of violence to people's intuitions of how the president should act in order to get things done. There's a real strain of political commentary where when things aren't happening, including during periods of divided government, people demand that the president lead. He, he does this thing called leading, which is typically left pretty undefined how it would work. But insofar as leading is often taken to mean giving big speeches, going around and mobilizing support for his position, taking a public stand on the issue and trying to focus attention on it, have a lot of Republicans over to the White House in a high-profile way, that kind of leading makes success much less likely for the president. Well, and
0: I think part of what you see there is that Journalists do a lot of looking under the lamppost to understand what right. the president is leading on. If you look back through time at media coverage in the fall of 2015 to try to understand what was the Obama White House focused on, what were they leading on, you would say they were really focused on trying to pass gun control legislation. Because Obama talked about it a right. lot. And because it's easy to write down what Obama says. You had a lot of stories about what Obama was saying about that. And And of course, he's completely sincere that he would like Congress to pass gun control legislation. But I think our more nuanced understanding is that, of course, he knew Congress wasn't going to pass any gun control legislation, that this was a little bit of a like, hey, look over here, (laughs) sleight of hand, where he's going to talk a lot about an Obvious non starter that he happens to believe in to just sort of put the marker down. While at the same time, a ton of people were engaged clearly in talks with congressional leaders about these other issues. And there's a lot of technical analysis. The agreement of the White House is crucial to getting the deal done. And they were, in fact, playing an important role, putting this deal together, shepherding it over the finish line. But part of getting that done in a constructive way was not talking about it. And it's really, it's challenging as a journalist to write stories about things that people are doing in secret. It's particularly challenging to write stories about how their commitment to secrecy underscores how important it is to them, because they were really good at keeping this secret, so we didn't know it was happening. But the fact that no one wrote articles about this is actually a sign of how seriously the different parties involved were taking this, right? So, like, John Boehner quit, and we all wrote these stories about, like, oh, the Pope came, right? Right. (laughs) But. Again, in retrospect, it's obvious that one of the reasons John Boehner stepped down was that he felt they were on the verge of some
1: breakthroughs
0: on some things, right? And this was like part of the John Boehner legacy program.
1: Yeah, he could go out on on this note of having. When was he had he had
0: to pick? Right? I mean, there was like some deals on the table that I think he wanted to say yes to, but he knew he wasn't going to be able to say yes to those deals and also keep fighting with other Republicans about stuff. So that helps, like, push him over the edge. But we didn't know that was happening at the time. So our coverage of that was all like, this is weird. (laughs)
2: And
1: Uh, it was weird. Speaking of things that people didn't know were happening at the time, that's a pretty good segue into our paper of the week.
2: Oh, it's such a good paper. All right.
1: Uh, What didn't we know?
2: What didn't we know? So, this is a National Bureau of Economic Research um, working paper that they we're always talk about this week NBER Day. Every day, like it's NBER Day, is what we say at Vox. Um, so, I've characterized this study as one that sounds super boring, but it's actually very interesting. And um, so, here's the super boring part there are some researchers who decided to compare two sets of data on who gets food stamps and who gets housing benefits. That sounds pretty dull. The data sets they were looking at one of them is this American community survey that happens all the time um where people you know we ask people, do you get food stamps, do you get housing benefits?" And then they actually looked at... We asked them about their
0: income in we general. We asked about
2: their income in general, what kind of government help they're getting. And some researchers decided to do something very basic. They decided to compare that against like actual government data and see you know, how many people are reporting these things. And they saw that a large chunk of this assistance goes unreported, that people don't tell you they're getting food stamps when you actually ask them about it. And if you factor in all these food stamps that people haven't been telling the government that they're getting... It actually means that food stamps have done twice as much as we thought to reduce poverty, or food stamps and housing benefits have done twice as much as we thought. And one of the things that's so interesting to me about this study is just the power of these programs, that we've been really underestimating what these programs do, how they're helping people. And, you know, what it means to spend money on them that we haven't really gotten the full impact. The other is just the bizarreness of this situation where the government, like, sends out these checks. They send out, you know, these food stamp things. They send out different welfare benefits. And that we've had such a misunderstanding of how many people are getting them is a very – Odd thing to think about with the data that we've been using. Well,
0: you know, this happened on the other end of the spectrum, right? So Thomas Piketty's original academic breakthrough was doing this for rich people. That we used to do our inequality household income measures come from the Census Bureau, and the Census Bureau does survey methods, and so that's how we got our information about poverty, and it's also how we got our information about inequality because you have to look at how households are doing. And so what uh, some researchers started doing was saying. You know what? Actually, the the IRS actually has paperwork from every single person in which they say how much income they have. And of course, they can lie to the IRS, but it's actually illegal to lie to the IRS. So you have some more juice in that administrative data. And they looked at the administrative data on income, and it said rich people were way richer than the census. Data. <laughs> and so we're seeing the same thing with the poverty data, right? The administrative data coming from the programs says many more people are getting food stamps than the survey data shows. Yeah. The Advantage, such as it is to the survey data, is that you can identify a single person, right? So the guy who gets this food stamp is also the person who has this labor market income. Whereas when you do administrative data, because we're trying to preserve people's anonymity – You just have a bunch of hazy lines and they have to do some statistical fancy footwork, you know, to try to identify which food stamp families from the administrative data or which people from from the census data. But in principle, if you didn't care about that kind of thing, right, In, in Norway, they used to just put the tax information about everyone up on a website that anyone could check. They've rolled back from that a little bit. But you know, uh, sort of proper governments actually keep these records and there's like
1: a computer file somewhere and it says like who's who and how much stuff do they get? The, The interesting backdrop to this paper is that the baseline poverty rate, the poverty rate that we tend to talk about when we talk about how many Americans are in poverty, does not include a large number of government transfers. The poverty rate is already quite elevated compared to what you would get if you actually look at the effect a lot of government programs are having. And now we learn that the real poverty rate is even lower than that once you take into account how big the effect of a lot of these programs are. But the bottom line, right, is if you do
0: apples to apples comparison, Including all these anti-poverty programs, that the poverty rate in 1964, before the War on Poverty started, was something like 19, percent and it's fallen in this new count. Mm-hmm. I think it was uh, to below eight.
2: I think it was eight point three percent. Eight point three.
0: At a time when you know, I it was don't above, think is above
1: is above 25 percent, I believe. And I, and I don't think anyone. In the 1960s
0: thinks we're living in, like, the greatest of economic times uh, for, for people. And yet, because of these government programs, the poverty rate, if you count it, has gone down an incredible amount. And so... You know, you can not like that, right? I mean, there's one line of argument that says, well, this just shows we have a kind of a growing dependency. Uh, But something you hear often from people, uh, kind of like a talk radio talking point, is like, oh, they did this war on poverty and it didn't even cut poverty (laughs) at all. But it actually cut poverty an enormous amount. I mean, it it did. Yeah, cut it
1: from 26 percent to – 16% 16% before taking into account this latest data.
2: Yeah. So in this latest study, if it's helpful, what they find, they're just looking at New York and they say, if you just don't take any help, this isn't um, over time, but this is just one snapshot. If you don't take any government support into account, the poverty rate is 13.6%. If you take it just with the faulty reporting where people a lot of people don't tell you, you fall to 108 And then if you get into accurate reporting, you fall again to 83 So it's like showing this very big impact of a lot of these things that people weren't even telling us about before? If the government
0: set about to collect accurate information about this as a more serious priority, we could have at least a much better informed debate around this, that anti-poverty programs have made a much bigger difference in people's lives than is appreciated. And a sort of conservative viewpoint you can take on that is that there is actually a much more extensive and much more significant welfare state out there for people on the bottom end and that like whatever the culture of dependency like all this stuff is is very real right and from liberals you can say you know this stuff that's been going on is really working it's really helping that this impression that somehow ronald reagan was elected 35 years ago and like since then I don't know. Like nothing has been done to lift a finger for for low income people. Like that's that's not true. Actually, the government's doing a ton, and it's like it or not, it makes a really big difference.
1: And I do think this. It's important to understanding the real debate happening about poverty between Democratic and Republican policymakers because. Democratic Republican policymakers are not all of them, but are most of them, and, and particularly the ones who are in key positions, are, are reasonably sophisticated about what the poverty rate does and doesn't show. And so there is really a debate about is the poverty rate, what we might call a sort of pre-tax, pre-transfer poverty rate, is that really the right one to use? Because not being in poverty, because the government is giving you money is still being in poverty. The, the, what we really want to know is how many people are getting out of poverty on their own. And that is the Republican view right now, that if you read sort of top you know, Republican thinkers on this issue, they will say that the poverty rate that doesn't include these benefits, not just doesn't include the corrected measure of them, but doesn't include a lot of them at all, is a correct poverty rate. Because what we are interested in is knowing how many people are out of poverty, on their own merit, just having an endlessly sort of dependent on the government.
0: Well, and so one reason that one reason that would this not is be important, helpful, but... right, is that if you take all government support away from people, their incomes are obviously going to go down. But it's likely that their labor market income will go up at least a little bit because you put them in a more desperate condition, right. and so they will be driven a little bit further, right? So if you say, well, market income poverty is the poverty that really counts, there's a strong argument that slashing spending on the welfare state will, quote-unquote, reduce poverty. Right. And that, and that's like an important element driving the thinking of, of a lot of people in, in the mean, Republican if you, Party. If you read
1: something, so I interviewed Arthur Brooks on, on this show a couple weeks ago, And we didn't get into this particular issue, but if you read his book, The Conservative Heart, something he talks about a lot is his view is that liberalism is very pessimistic about the poor, that liberals believe that the poor on some fundamental level are not going to rise up and, and get out of poverty and so kind of need to be put in this almost custodial state. Whereas conservatism, it has a kind of a, a tough love, but it's a tough love based on on respect and a belief that the poor will be able to rise up and, and particularly if you put them in a situation where they have to work, where they have to get off of government dependency, then you're going to see a sort of flowering of their potential, which will in the, in the long run be much better for them. And it is this kind of very, I think, key and to some degree subterranean debate in, in American politics right now. It's one reason I always I find that it. to be an ironic viewpoint coming from sort of think tank people.
0: Like they're really <laughs> out there, like on the grind, you know, well, making, I think a, making thing hustling. I,
1: I think there's also a, a deeper thing here, which is that if we took that position and we tried to apply it equally. There is a lot of subsidy happening all over the place in American life. There's a lot of corporate welfare happening. I get a really nice break on my mortgage. There's all kinds of things where people are getting subsidized in different ways. And if you decide to try to count none of that. uh, And one thing also is that a lot of it for wealthier folks happens through what Suzanne Mettler calls a submerged state. A lot of it happens through tax deductions and exemptions. Our health uh, healthcare that we mm-hmm. get through Vox Media isn't taxed by the government. And so it doesn't look like we're receiving government benefits. You don't you don't see it happening, we don't get a check. But it really is happening. And so we've done this kind of funny thing and, and I I say funny in a pretty dark way there in American policymaking where the support the poor get is very visible and can be attacked and can be made to make them look very dependent. And the support that wealthier members of society get is quite invisible and so is quite protected from both political analysis. It's harder to trace and it doesn't look as bad and so it's harder to attack.
2: One other wonky point about this study that I think is important is just – how wrong reporting can be, like how wrong the right. numbers we often rely on. Like I read a lot about the Census Bureau numbers on um, health, insurance. health insurance and how many people have health insurance. And, and we this, should
0: probably check that. We should
2: probably, Yeah, we should probably. Well, there was this whole controversy when um, the Obama administration tried to change the way they count health insurance because it turns out asking someone if you have the health insurance can be kind of a confusing question. Are you supposed to report for the entire past year? What if I had health insurance for like seven months of the past year? What if I had for five? Are you just asking if I have it? Right now, this change, I think, was happening in 2013 or so. And there was a whole ruckus about the Obama administration. They were just trying to inflate the numbers on insurance. You wouldn't be able to compare pre-Obamacare to post-Obamacare. And it was all, you know, to make Obamacare look better when you – actually look at what the census was doing, you know, they were thinking very deeply about their questions on health insurance and realizing when they ask this question in two different ways, they get very different answers on, like, whether people have insurance or not. And, like, one of the things this raises for me as a writer is just how faulty a lot of the numbers we're working with are.
1: And something I think is related to that, though, and and I do think it's an important – we haven't really said clearly, I think, in this discussion what is going on, but it's stigma, the reason mm-hmm. people don't want to say they're getting food stamps or getting housing subsidies to a large degree of stigma, it's an interesting question to the degree to which health insurance fits into that. I think Right. Or
2: if you're getting it, Obamacare subsidies or Medicaid, are you going to want but then to then that,
1: that? Right. And then that has a, a secondary effect. There are compared to potential eligibility for food stamps, for Medicaid, for housing subsidies, for a lot of things, you have a reasonably low level of take up. And one of the reasons for that is information asymmetries. People don't know what's available to them. It's very hard to get it. But another reason is that they feel really bad about being on food stamps. One of the things that George W. Bush administration did, they took food stamps and remade it into a program called SNAP. You know, they helped make it a card so you weren't, like, taking out these things that were identified And it has as a nice stamps. logo now. It has now. a nice logo. And the idea there was to have more people feel okay about using it. But there is, again, this debate in policymaking making. Is it a good thing to destigmatize things like food stamps? There are a lot of conservatives who argue no, that it is really important that people feel deeply humiliated and ashamed when they get government assistance. And a lot of liberals and and, and other folks believe, yeah, I mean, if these are available to people and it is something they need, they should feel okay about taking it. And you really want to do everything you can to destigmatize it. But what's happening here in terms of reporting is very heavily about stigma and people feeling embarrassed about this. And that also has a really significant effect on how many people end up using it. So in a world where you didn't have so much stigma, you would both have better reporting, but you would also have a lot more people on these programs. But I but I also think that there is just a real data quality problem. And you see it like
0: all up and down, these census reports. And it's a way in which political polarization sort of hurts us as a country because it makes it – not worthwhile to sort of take the shit for making small changes that people are going to get really freaked out about, right? So, for example, if you ask a smart, wonky Republican about Social Security, one thing that all think is that we should re-index the benefits from the consumer price index to the chained consumer price index.
1: That is a good topic. It's a for fascinating some weeks. topic. But
0: at any rate, it is a thing that they think. They think that it is a more accurate way to measure inflation. And most Democrats, for it makes Democratic experts a little uncomfortable because they generally agree it's more accurate, but they don't necessarily like they do the benefit cuts, blah, 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 blah. So the same question of which inflation index to use, though, it pops up everywhere. Right. So one thing the Obama administration could have done but didn't was say, oh, you know what Republicans say about chained inflation indices, that's really correct. So we're going to start using the chained index in the census report of household income. If they had done that, that would show household income has gone up quite a bit more right. than, than with the current one, right? But obviously, if the Obama administration generated a 10% increase in household income by changing the way inflation is calculated, right. Republicans would have thrown a fit about it, right? I mean, they'd be like, that's crazy. Like, you can't just conjure up income gains out of some obscure inflation index switch. But it really would be more accurate. And then the, it keeps flipping back and forth depending on the time period you look at. Liberals point at these things and they say, oh, there's been no wage growth since 1977. Consum- conservatives tend to come back and say, no, actually, if you use this other inflation index, you see the wages (laughs) have gone up quite a lot, right? And so... There's a sort of interesting, it's not really interesting, technical debate about whether the index should be chained or not. It, it clearly should be chained, um, but it has different. It's not even a debate, really. It, it really not as subtle. I, I'm I angry agree it should be chained.
2: One other thing I, I will explain yeah. another
0: day. But the point is, is that in any in any given context, whether to chain or not to chain, has this like narrow partisan. Implication, And that's what drives everything. So nothing ever gets changed.
2: Well, one other thing, you know, adding to what Ezra was saying about stigma, I think some of it is just like confusion, too, about what you're getting, like things sure. are getting, you know, pulled. Like I think if you would ask most people, you know, who get insurance at work, oh, do you get a subsidy from the government on your insurance? They'd say, like, no, of course not. I pay it. I see it coming out of my thing you know that's like a very masked example but i think you know as we're talking about the rebranding of food stamps trying to make it like less of like a food stamps thing when you're asking people do you get this program i think some of it might just also be genuine confusion about what exactly is what. And
1: and these programs are often built to create confusion. Now, I don't think that's so true for food stamps, which you have to go to an office and really apply for. But Obamacare, Obamacare, it it isn't so much that you don't realize maybe you're getting insurance to some degree through the government, but Obamacare was set up so that it is run and branded by individual states. So the California Insurance Exchange is not called Obamacare California or even the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act California edition. It's called Covered California. And Kentucky is called Connect. And there are the ky, with right. KY. There's this. an
2: amazing anecdote in the Huffington Post. That's one of my favorite about Obamacare, where this guy like goes up to Connects booth at some state fair, and they start telling him about their program, and he's like, "Oh, this is so much better than Obamacare." Right. And the workers are like, eh, "Should we tell him?" And they decide not to. But right. I think right, like there's some of that. But
0: it going, so also there's a
1: lot of confusion. Going on. On.
0: But but also it depends on state governments, you know. So if you if you have a, a baby in D.C., uh, probably if you have a baby anywhere, you have to fill out some paperwork at the hospital. <laughs> um, so. But and the D.C. paperwork— Not in Montana. I, the D.C. paperwork, <laughs> sure they are really, really, really trying to assess whether your newfound child makes you eligible for Medicaid and other kinds of welfare benefits. Uh, because when you add a person to your household, you become poorer in the poverty calculation. And so D.C., you know, is a very liberal jurisdiction. They really, like, want to sign people up for these programs. So they are trying to, like— you're busy, you got a new baby, you're really tired, you're probably not thinking a lot about has your eligibility for different social assistance programs altered. And the government is trying to ascertain that. So they will follow up with you. I mean, I, I was not, but if you are based on this paperwork, they'll like call you up and be like, you got to sign up for this stuff. If you go to Louisiana, they're not doing that because the state government is animated by different uh, priorities, different Well, values. even more
2: than that, they're probably making you re-enroll each six months right. and send them pay stubs to show that you are still they're trying to make. They,
0: they want to say, look, if you qualify for this program and you really are right. really need it, we're not going to stop you. There's like federal laws and stuff. <laughs> we follow them. But they don't believe as a political community that it is a good idea to have a generous welfare state. So if people neglect to bother to take full advantage of it, like they think that's all right. Totally this
2: good. is why you see the take up rate for Medicaid. It usually hovers around like 60 percent or so. forty like percent. Right. When, the when you look are. at
0: the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families which program. Which is what welfare became. Yeah. Which is the sort of new name for the old welfare. Uh, the. Majority, I think a large majority of the families who actually get it live in California, New York, because those are big states, but also because those are states that actually try to get people signed up. Texas, Florida, like they don't want you on it because they want to say, well, we don't have any people on welfare.
1: Good episode, y'all.
2: Do we have to do a self-criticism session, Ezra?
1: Well, I could. Yeah. I, mean, I wish maybe. I'd
0: looked up acronyms more before I, <laughs> before I came into it. There's a lot of... Uh, you know s i p p a c s oh or, that'd be
2: a fun game in, in
0: all this data, there's like a lot of things I don't remember what they stand for.
1: We got some good meta criticism of the self criticism section <laughs> in our email, which is weedsitvox.com, right wesvo dot yes. yes, people saying you should critique the episode of the week before because then you've had time to digest it, think about it you've heard heard our criticisms. And I had to run to the train early the week before, so I had to cut the episode short. So I thought that was bad. <laughs> but this was fun. I enjoyed this discussion. Yeah,
2: I hope people are still here. I hope I didn't scare them off with my explanation of Medicare, if, Social Security, if, hold harmless. If
1: they ran off, this isn't This for them. isn't their podcast. Yeah.
0: That was, I think, the weediest that the te- we've gotten. <laughs> but it called for it. I have seen so many articles about this deal that's like, and it did something about <laughs> Medicare. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I think that's how my story started, where you came up to me yesterday morning and be like, so what's the something? And I was like, I literally have no idea. I'm going to call some people.
1: But it's amazing how much policy coverage actually works that way, how much policy coverage hand waves about what happened in order to say whether it happened.
0: Right. I, I do think it's, uh, we should do a full like, thing about journalism at point because it's very evergreen. But yeah. it's, it's not acceptable to say, like, honestly, I don't know <laughs> what they did with Medicare. But like, I wanted to write the story. Because a bunch of other stuff happened, I didn't want to pretend nothing happened. Right. But like I just don't know what they did, and you can't you can't put that in. So, and you can but like, I've
2: got this fact, right. and I'm so just so you can put like work it out here. with an editor.
0: Like, how do we write around like what the occurrence was?
1: Right, that's um, a good criticism of everything else that happens. <laughs>
0: no, I'm, well, you know, but we it, look. We've all done it. We've Here's all done my self
1: criticism. I came in here not knowing really what had happened on the Medicare side. I've been. And my life has a lot more meetings nowadays than it used to have. And so I've been in a lot of meetings the last couple of days. So I found your explanation on this really helpful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That wasn't really, that was a criticism of me, but a compliment of you. Oh,
2: well, this, I like this self <laughs> session. I'm sad that we skipped past the
0: Medicare provider side cut extension. Oh, uh, we
2: didn't even get to the oil thing. I'm the, sad. Uh, we, I'm, I, the strategic, strategic us petroleum for... reserve.
0: Yeah. There was, there were so many more weeds of that. Video. <laughs> uh, hopefully it will, something will happen and we can, we can revisit it.
1: All right. Well, until next time, Matt, do you want to you take us out? This has been a, another
0: stunningly <laughs> weedsy episode of, of The Weeds, Vox.com's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Uh, thank you on behalf of myself, Ezra Klein, Sarah Cliff. Thanks to our producer, AC Valdez. You can email us, as always, weeds at vox.com.
1: You should rate us on on iTunes? Yes, you should rate us on iTunes. You should
0: download us and give us a five and say we are awesome.
1: iTunes has some kind of algorithm where if you rate us a lot, iTunes then says that we are a super popular podcast. And then
0: more people download and more people rate us. It's a virtuous cycle of world domination. (laughs) And you could be a part of it.